Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurk. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. When I think of sea level rise, I picture waves crashing over the Embarcadero or high tides seeping into homes along Stinson Beach. But sea level rise isn't just higher tides. The first place the water will show up is underground, leading to some very surprising and unknown consequences. We'll talk about how sea level rise will impact Bay Area residents and what policymakers are doing to prepare. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. This winter's rainstorms were a sobering reminder of how vulnerable the Bay Area is to flooding. I happened to fly over San Francisco a few days after the storm, and communities near the coasts looked a little like Venice. And in the relatively near future, rising groundwater from sea level rise is going to make the region even more susceptible to flooding. This means we will have to redesign buildings, freeways, and sewer systems to prepare. Today, we continue our series Climate Fix, Rethinking Solutions for California, a collaboration between Forum and the KQED science team. We're joined by Ezra David Romero. He's on that team. He's a climate reporter here at KQED. And Dr. Chris May, she's the CEO and founding principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. Welcome to you both. Uh, Chris, I'd like to just kind of lay the groundwork here. <laughs> I didn't even mean to say that, but can you tell us a little bit about what exactly groundwater is? <laughs> groundwater is, um, it's the water that's contained within all of the soil particles, all of the dirt that's under our feet. Um, so down by the beach, if you're digging a hole, you can find a lot of really wet sand. Dig it big enough, you'll see like just a pool of water. Uh, we have the same thing um, all around, well, really everywhere. There is going to be a water table, and underneath that water table, the dirt and the soil is going to be 100% saturated with water. And I imagine, because this is going to be brackish seawater coming in, that this is not the good kind of water to sort of replenish our groundwater or our water table, you know, for communities like San Jose or the Central Valley that depend on groundwater. That's correct. This is a the shallow groundwater layer that's unconfined on its surface, so it can rise up all the way to the ground. The water we rely on for drinking is a much deeper aquifer layer that has, you know, cleaner water. The shallow groundwater layer contains lots of contamination from things that are running off our roadways, fertilizers people are putting on their lawns, um, and a lot of other contamination sources. So I would not recommend drinking it. Ezra, you've, you've written about this, and we can get into it in more detail later on, but just you've written about how there's 900 toxic sites that could you know, be tapped basically as this seawater comes in. 
these toxics will rise to the to the surface. Is that right? Yeah, that's the theory that's there. Um, there's a study called Toxic Tides out of UC Berkeley and UCLA that came out about a year and a quarter ago at this point, and they found those 900 sites. And these are old military sites. These are like chemical factories. These are they could be a gas station, things like that, all around the rim of the bay. And a lot of these are dating back to like World War II, the Cold War, things like that. When the bay itself, you know, was this booming place where there was whaling, where there was oil, that where there was all these exports happening, the gold rush, even things like that. And so, um, and that, and, and all the a lot of those toxic sites are in that shallow layer of groundwater that's like fifty feet from the surface. And so the fear is that as um, sea levels rise, the toxics will push that up into communities and affect people's health. And Chris, will the water literally like bubble up, or these toxics literally bubble up? What's the process as as sea level you know sort of rises? What how, how does it going to look or feel in the community? Uh, well, we don't exactly know. But a lot of these sites, if they've been cleaned up, um, they clean them up by putting, well, they'll clean up as much of the contamination as they can, and then they might cover them with three feet of clean soil, thinking that that water table is never going to rise, so that three feet of clean soil is going to be a great barrier to help protect public health. But now that we know that that water table can rise, um, it's going to interact with that kind of legacy contamination and contaminants that are very mobile, that are able to move faster, those are the ones that are going to rise up towards the ground surface. Um, and if they, uh, some of the contaminants can like volatize into the air. So before the water table even hits the ground surface, those contaminants could be kind of coming up through the soil where you can't even see them. Um, and those are some of the most toxic kinds. Oh my gosh, volatile. Wow. So this could not just then affect, you know, coastal communities. If these are leaching into the air, that's really going to be a problem for everyone. Is that right? For public health, for the environment, for the ecology. Um, yeah, we could have a considerable challenge on our hands. Um, definitely. And Ezra, what's the timeline? When is this happening already? Or is this 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the future? What are we looking at? The toxics, toxics issue is an issue now. It's uh, in some communities like Richmond. There's already this, you know, these gat, these uh, contaminants turning into air in some of these places and going seeping through cracks and things like that. <clears throat> but on the climate models, it could happen in the next like five years, a hundred years. Um, basically, the climate models say like everything from like ten inches up to ten feet, and that's all dependent on how fast how how much fossil fuels we keep on burning, and whether that's putting get gotten in control or not. Ten inches to ten feet—that's quite a wide range a number here. Chris, what are you planning for? Where, what are you suggesting? You know, agencies, cities, communities prepare for. That's so wildly different. It's a huge range. Um, there's been huge advances, though, in understanding sea level rise science um, and uh, the. I think 14 federal agencies, uh, that number might be wrong, but they worked together to release the federal sea level rise guidance um, in uh, February 2022. And one of the great findings was that even if we stop all greenhouse gas emissions today, or actually in 2020, <laughs> we will still have a minimum of two feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. So two feet 
is our absolute minimum, but we're still emitting all of these greenhouse mm -hmm. gases. So yeah. we know it's going to be higher than two feet. Um, Ten feet, you know, I have to hope that as the world, we're going to get our act together and really start reducing greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, we're seeing the effects of climate change already. Um, so my hope is that we don't have to plan for 10 feet. Um, but three and a half to, to five feet to seven feet, that is really the likely range of what we could see by 2100. But sea level rise will continue to go up after 2100. And that's another part of the challenge. And I imagine that although this is going to hit coastal communities and those who have waterfront property um, the hardest, that people in the Oakland Hills and Orinda, this you know sea level rise is going to have impacts that impact all of us. Ezra, kind of talk about the bigger picture and, and how the region itself is going to be impacted. Yeah, most people who live in the Bay Area live near the water or semi-close or in the hills that are connected to it. And Imagine if seas rise, if freeways are cut off, if infrastructure like sewers and um, highways and uh, electrical lines, if those are all affected by this, like it'll affect life for everyone who lives in the region. Because even though we're nine counties, 101 cities, like 8 million people, you know, we're all this one ecosystem. We're in this one watershed that comes high from the Sierra Nevada all the way to the bay. And what happens to one place will affect the other. And one seawall in one community could force water to another place. So it's it's something we need to think about regionally because sea level rise is a global issue that has very local impacts and then it'll impact everyone who lives in the region. Chris, I just want to underline too, this is happening now, right? This is not some future scenario. We are already seeing sea level rise and we are already seeing groundwater rise. And I think I heard you say or write somewhere that like, houses could pop. And so like the groundwater could rise and actually lift houses. Can you describe that process? Well, yeah, water is the most powerful substance on earth. Um, and it, it has like this buoyancy force that it is pushing things up from below. So we've seen in areas where uh, people working on their swimming pool, they drain their swimming pool, and then you have like a big, huge storm event, it could pop that swimming pool right out of the ground. So people with basements, if your house is not really big and heavy, yes, those houses can start to actually be pushed up out of the ground. Um, you'll start feeling that house being more unstable. So that can definitely really happen. Ezra, what did we learn from this recent you know, set of storms in terms of how this will all play out? Where did we learn that uh, areas that are really susceptible to flooding and, and how those areas will likely be impacted as groundwater rises? Well, we saw flooding all around the Bay. We saw flooding in San Francisco, all, all around the city. We, places like East Palo Alto and San Pablo or San Pablo um, flooded as well on these in these creeks. And it's sort of foreshadowing what could come in the future with sea level rise, right? As the climate warms, we're going to see sea level rise. But then also these atmospheric rivers are getting stronger. There was a study that says they could be, get like 30% wetter um, in the next 50 years. And so... We have these two simultaneous things that are both meaning a far wetter future during these um, extreme moments of time. Because we're still in this like larger drought pattern, but when it comes to climate change, we're seeing the opposite of the pendulum. We have an extreme drought, but also extreme wet times. And even snowy times in the middle I mean, of... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, with snow in the forecast today, it's kind of a very wild time. Chris, are we prepared for this? What are we doing to prepare for this future? 
We've definitely been doing a lot of preparing for sea level rise. Um, this region has been like at the forefront of um, really trying to understand how we can adapt to sea level rise and, and kind of bring the region together to look at solutions. And I know Dana um, can talk more about that. Um, but we're not prepared for all of these things to happen at the same time, for the rising groundwater, for the extreme precipitation, for sea level rise. And I think we saw a lot of that in early January with these nine back-to-back -back storms. Um, the groundwater table became very, very high during mm -hmm. those storms with all of that rain. And so, you know, we mapped areas that would be most likely to have um, emergent groundwater, groundwater that comes above the ground, like with 24 inches of sea level rise. Those areas, inland areas, actually pretty much all of them flooded during those nine back-to-back -back storms. Yeah. So any area where you're seeing emergent groundwater, um, particularly like between now and 36 inches of sea level rise um, on the mapping we did, those are areas where you need to prepare for not only rising groundwater, but flooding due to stormwater um, and precipitation as well. So it's a, it's a big challenge. We'll talk more about that big challenge just after this break. We're talking about how the Bay Area is confronting sea level rise. We're joined by Ezra David Romero. He's a climate reporter at KQED. Dr. Chris May, she's CEO and founding principal at Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And after the break, Dana Breckwald will join us. She's assistant planning director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development, Development excuse me, Commission. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about how the Bay Area is confronting sea level rise with David, Ro excuse me, Ezra David Romero. He's a climate reporter here at KQED. I sit next to him all the time. Dana Breckwald, she's Assistant Planning Director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission. And Dr. Chris May, she's CEO and Founding Principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And we want to bring callers into the conversation are you worried about how sea level rise may impact your home or your community? Do you live on the waterfront? Do you have some concerns, some questions for our experts? Or maybe your flood with, your home was flooded in the recent storms. Are you worried about how groundwater may be an issue going forward in the future? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 
or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Dana, I want to bring you into the conversation here. Can you give us a little bit of a backstory on the Bay? How is it traditionally utilized and how has that changed? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, the Bay is a, is a really wonderful asset uh, for the Bay Area. Um, it's the largest estuary on the West Coast. It's a part of the Pacific Flyway, which means that it's a major nesting point for uh, bird species on their migration um, every year. And it's been, it has a long history of being uh, utilized for industrial purposes as well. During the gold rush, it was a major dumping point for sediment. And that's really when the bay started to become filled, um, meaning that uh, a lot of sediment was dumped into the bay to create new land. And that continued until 1965 when the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission was created um, to help manage that fill. There was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, fill was occurring to create new land for development. And the bay was shrinking quite significantly. If you look at historic maps, the bay is much smaller than its original footprint. Um, so the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission was created to manage that. Um, and BCDC is really was created to protect and enhance the bay, um, manage the fill, and protect the bay as, as an asset that the that residents of the Bay Area can use as a as, as for recreation, um, maintaining public access, and to uh, ensure that um, the Bay shoreline is preserved for uh, water oriented uses. Um, so, in when BCDC was created in 1965, we were faced with this issue that the Bay was being filled and it was becoming smaller. Now we're facing another issue: the Bay is becoming larger again due to sea level rise. So, the mission of BCDC is changing. In, in many ways. And um, this is reflected in uh, some legislature. In 2008, BCDC was given the charge to do studies to see what sea level rise was going to do to the bay and how we could um, uh, change our mission to, to um, see what the Bay Area needed to do to um, respond to sea level rise and um, what types of adaptation we would need to do to respond to this. Well, let's bring a caller into the conversation. Lisa in Bethel Island in Contra Costa County, you're on the air. Lisa? Thank you. Um, I'm also on a reclamation district that has flood control. And in Bethel Island, we are below sea level. So we had properties that flooded due to a lack of drainage, uh, due to a lack of county drainage off our roads, plus the sea level rising and also the groundwater. We impacted our sewer districts. Um, they came out and actually had to vacuum water off of our um, streets and properties. So there's a concern about sea level rising for properties that are below, that are protected by levees. And I wondered if you could give me any information on the anticipation of what that will look like for properties that are built below sea level and what can counties and districts do and is there any FEMA funding for this? Great question. Dana, do you want to take that? Yeah, I think this is this is a really complicated issue because, um, you know, historically we have been a society that's decided that certain land is is worth protecting and there's been funding for this through FEMA and it's going to get more complicated as, as subsidence occurs and funding becomes harder harder to get. So I think in the long run there are some difficult decisions that are going to need to be made 
<clears throat> about whether this is this is a value that we're going to continue to uphold. Um, and those decisions are not going to be made in in a in a blanket way. It's not going to be made by the federal government that's going to be passed down. I think these are decisions that are going to need to be made sort of on a case-by-case basis. And um, land use is inherently local in the Bay Area um, and on a property-by-property basis. And I think the federal government will continue to support um, flood flood management and flood control as as long as it feasibly can. Um, but in the long run, these are going to be difficult decisions that, that we're going to need to face as to, you know, whether whether it's feasible to support those those sorts of decisions um, over over many decades in the future. Well, let's go to uh, another caller, William. You're on the air in Belvedere, William. Good morning. Uh, many communities, including my own community, Belvedere, are considering building flood walls with what are called sheet pilings, which are driven down thirty feet into the ground at the junction of the bay and the land. And my concern is whether building those walls to prevent floods from the bay could also result in trapping the rising groundwater behind the walls so that it couldn't get out to the bay and therefore making flooding in lowland areas behind the flood walls worse. Chris, do you want to take that one? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, A lot of communities are looking at these cutoff walls, flood walls. Um, What they can do is they can actually kind of cut off an inland community from the bay, and they can reduce the amount that your groundwater table rises due to sea level rise. But you are still going to trap the rainfall and precipitation that is going to rise that groundwater table as well. And that can actually rise up and make flooding so much worse for a community. Where you're at in Belvedere, you have steep hillsides around you. So all the rain that falls there, it's coming down to those low-lying areas where you live. Um, And you would be trapping that natural pathway for that fresher water to get out to the bay. Um, So that is it's definitely a huge challenge of trying to balance what are the right combination of solutions that can address, you know, all of these different hazards and not addressing one hazard while making other things a whole lot worse. Ezra, talk about the solutions that are on the table. We've, I mean, I think there's wetlands, there's walls. Talk about the pros and cons and how those will influence, you know, if, if one community puts up a wall and another community puts up a wetland, how will that kind of bounce off each other? There's tons. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a wide, wide range of solutions out there. Everything from like the seawalls here in San Francisco, uh, natural solutions where they, um, where they use like a, a levee and they restore part of the levee to make it like to sort of restore that natural hill coming from the ocean from the bay. Um, so as the o- ocean rises or the bay rises, it doesn't pour into a community. It just kind of gradually goes up. Um, there's also the big walls down into the water, like we were just talking about, to keep the water out. Um, there's pla- that's in places like Richmond and other areas. Um, but some of the pros and the cons are that if there isn't this regional way of thinking about this, like one community might protect from like ten feet of sea level rise, which is happening in places like San Mateo County, and then just down the way in San Jose or just north of there, they may not be pre- preparing for that much or with the same kinds of solutions. And so, say if the water does rise and 
the wall does its job, that water has to go somewhere and it will go to a place where there isn't a wall. And so there's this push and pull when it comes to solutions. And that's why people like Dana are thinking about regional solutions and getting everyone together. And Dana, how hard is it going to be to get everybody together? It sounds like you're trying to balance, what, 40 cities and 10 counties. How do you get everyone on the same page? And is that even possible? We're working on a regional approach um, called the Regional Shoreline Adaptation Plan. And I think one of our big goals is to to set some minimum standards. Those are just things like... Uh, you know, what's what's our common approach to reading the sea level rise science and what are the standard, you know, what are our anticipated um, projections for how high we think the water is going to go in the next 50 years? Because um, that's not consistent around the region right now. But a, a really big issue that we're dealing with is consistency in terms of uh capacity. Uh, not every city has the same capacity to do sea level rise planning. And by capacity, I mean staff and the funding to do it. And a lot of communities have uh, equity issues. Um, there are a lot of vulnerable communities along the shoreline. And uh, it's really inequitable when cities that don't have the ability to do planning and have vulnerable uh, communities along the shoreline, they're going to be flooded first. Um, and so a big priority for us is to ensure that uh, there's not that major inequity occurring simply because cities don't have the ability to do planning and to do projects. So it's not necessarily that, you know, everybody has to do the same planning all over the region. It's 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 um, that we want to ensure that the most vulnerable communities are not being left behind. And in fact, you know, it's not about equity um, or it's not about equality. It's about equity. So in ensuring that we're doing actually more planning in the vulnerable communities um, to make sure that there's not inequitable uh, consequences happening in those communities. Let's bring another caller into the conversation. Arlene and Alameda, you're on the air. Hi, yes. Um, let's see. Prior to COVID, there was a long-range plan of uh, raising the western edge of Treasure Island. There was this major effort um, pounding the earth with huge equipment and um, bringing in dirt. There'd be these, I called them the pyramids of Treasure Island, um, where um, gra uh, granite and um, rocks would be ground down with the earth and brought over and constant pounding. We would literally, our desks and computers would shake. And I'm wondering, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank, you know, the Ellis Island of the West where we would, uh, friends and I would go, there's camping and hiking. Uh, if they're doing anything similar, you, you know um, which island I'm talking about in the Bay uh, to help prepare that for, because, um, and also for Treasure Island, they're building houses, huge plans for hotels as well, um, you know, a new tourist center uh, for Treasure Island. So that definitely is a major issue, issue of Bay Water Rise in that area. Dana, you want to take a comment there? It sounds to me like that was compaction occurring um, to mitigate liquefaction, liquefaction actually, yeah. um, <clears throat> against uh, earthquakes. Um, I, I was given to understand something different, but, you, you know, you would definitely have a better, a better understanding, I guess, um, uh, because I thought that area would be susceptible to the Baywater rise. I'm sure it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm not intimately familiar <laughs> with that project. So um, I'm looking at, at Chris and Ezra to see if they have any more in, insight on that project. Um, yeah, I know one thing they've been doing is w one of the reasons for bringing in a lot of the fill is to actually raise grades so that 
people could live there longer as sea levels rise. And then yeah. you also need a lot of that fill and material to build the flood protection structures to deal with the storm surge. Um, but definitely they also need a lot of that compaction to make the ground more stable um, and to deal with that earthquake risk. Because as, as the groundwater table rises in these areas of infill, it actually increases your risk to earthquakes. Um, and so they're really taking kind of the steps to help mitigate that risk. Um, I think the other island you were talking about might be Angel Island um, in the bay. Um, and thankfully, Angel Island doesn't have that vast, low-lying kind of space like Treasure Island does. I mean, Treasure Island is like completely man-made um, onto uh, Yerba Buena Island. So Angel Island and the places that we love to, to hike there um, should be safe for, for quite some time. Well, Kate writes, the Baylands in Brisbane are being developed for mixed use, including housing. How can this housing be protected from all the problems with rising groundwater? Is it possible to develop housing on land that had industrial contamination from multiple sources for years? Chris, you want to take that one? I really don't recommend putting houses on top of these really contaminated sites um, or even legacy contaminated sites. Um, we have been doing that as a nation for, for many years, but that was not taking into account climate change. And the issue of rising groundwater and the potential to remobilize contaminants is very new. So it's really this new wrench that's being thrown into a lot of these plans. And I think there's really more study, more research, more modeling that needs to be done before we really want to put people um, in places where... You know, we don't want to create a public health hazard area. I think we have a legacy of doing that as humans, and we need to stop doing that. I think personally there are many reasons we don't want to put new housing on diked baylands. I think there's many lost opportunities for, um, you know, uh, protect the for shoreline protection due to, uh, you know, creating new wetlands and uh, the liquefaction risk and. Uh, sea level rise risk. So I think that's one of our biggest opportunities actually for uh, reducing our sea level rise risk is just avoiding building in those types of, of areas in the Bay Area. But there are Seems lots of places where that is happening around the Bay, like in Newark yes. and in Richmond and um, where, where, where this person is from. It's And there's laws that are allowing that to happen, like CEQA, and there's like loopholes for that to keep on happening because they're not taking in climate change or they weren't created at a time when climate change was in people's minds. And so there needs to be some new thinking, it seems, around how we move forward when it comes to development around the Bay. Yes, absolutely. If you are building in these places, is there any sort of protocols or things that you're supposed to put into place to make sure that there's not going to be groundwater seeping into your brand new waterfront home? Is there anything in place that, you know, in terms of coding or anything to to build according to our future? Dana? If you're if you're getting a permit from BCDC, we, we passed climate change policies in 2011. You are required to do a study uh, to see if, if you're new development will be uh, subject to sea level rise. And if so, uh, our policies call for resilient by mid-century and adaptive by end of century. And so, you know, you're required to engage an engineer and they're required to submit um, plans and and that's it. And, and you know, is that enough? Um, I think that's what BCDC is questioning right now. Should we be stronger on what we're requiring um, if you're doing development along the Bay Shoreline? Um, you know, I think Chris can speak to some of the 
specific um, engineering solutions that you can do in that type of land. Um, but I think Ezra is correct in that there's a lot of a lot of loopholes, and there are a lot of ways in which you can still do development along these types of, of shorelines um, that allow you to not build to the level. First of all, that allow you to build at all, and second of all, that allow you to build in a way that is not to the level that um, would be most appropriate uh, for not just safety, but for protection of people and uh, personal investments along the shoreline. I mean, these homes are people's assets, and what are they going to do in 50 years when their assets are are flooding and and they have no protection for themselves? Well, we want to bring callers into the conversation. Are you worried about sea level rise and maybe how it's going to impact your home, maybe your waterfront home? Um, are you preparing for sea level rise? Are you working with your community? Share your stories, your thoughts with us now. Um, do you have any questions or concerns uh, for our guests? I'm sure they have excellent answers. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. We're talking about how the Bay Area is confronting sea level rise, and we're joined by Dana Breckwald. She's Assistant Planning Director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission. That's BCDC. Dr. Chris May, she's CEO and founding principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And Ezra David Romero, he's a climate reporter here at KQED. Stay with us, we'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. And we're talking about how the Bay Area is confronting a sea level rise. And we're joined by Dana Breckwald. She's Assistant Planning Director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission, or BCDC. Dr. Chris May, she's CEO and Founding Principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And Ezra David Romero, he's a climate reporter at KQED. And we want to hear from you. Callers, do you have any questions for our experts? Are you worried about how sea level rise is going to impact your home, maybe your community, give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. 
or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram or at KQED Forum. And let's go to John. He has been very patiently waiting. John in Berkeley, you're on the air. Hello, Leslie, and thank you all and everyone listening. First thing that I wanted to say is that we need to change our frame of reference. Don't say climate change, the changed climate, past tense. The oceans are going to rise. And so my thought was that we dam the Golden Gate with locks, a single block. Pacific Ocean will rise. A hundred-year flood from now. So uh, what do you think of that? Chris? <laughs> this idea has definitely come up a lot in a lo- many different forums. Um, it definitely seems like it could be an answer when we're dealing with sea level rise um, and the rise in the Pacific Ocean. But you also have to think about those like nine back-to-back atmospheric rivers that brought all of that precipitation and flooding to the Bay Area. That brought record rainfall kind of flowing down the um, Sacramento River and going straight out the Golden Gate. So we need these mechanisms to get the rainfall out. And it's like we have all of these hazards compounding together. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to just address one. We need to address all of them together. Um, Before we could even consider doing something like a lock at the Golden Gate, we would also have to do like significant, I think, environmental studies. It would completely change the Bay ecosystem, endangered species, the Delta, um, our ability to pump water down to Southern California. I mean, it, it definitely has some like huge potential consequences that need to be considered. My sense is with, with sea level rise is this is not a simple solution. You can't just like build one single wall and stop the problem because there's all of these ramifications that will unfold kind of like dominoes. Have you found that in your in your reporting, Ezra, that this is just an incredibly complex issue? Yeah, I think it also comes down to that our view of San Francisco Bay is quite skewed. We think of it as like a shoreline, but it's really this giant river watershed that's like starting in the top of the Sierra Nevada and heading out to the bay that's incredibly linked. And so I think all of this is linked together. And so we have to think of it in this like regional, like even California-wide perspective because what happens to me in San Francisco on the shoreline here, that water is potentially coming from like 100 miles away. And tides affect Sacramento and streams as far as like 60 miles away, things like that. So it's like, I think we have a skewed view because we're so segmented in this like wild, wild west mentality of like having each city on their own. Well said. Let's go to Bob in Corta Madera. Bob, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Leslie. Uh, this is Bob. I'm on the flood board here in Corta Madera, and a third of Corta Madera is in the FEMA flood zone. A lot of that is protected by old earthen levees uh, that have settled, and then with storm surge and sea level rise, Those need to be raised up. The problem and concern is there's some wetland vegetation at the base of these, and so that would complicate just adding to the levee and expanding the base. And so how do we get through BCDC to get approval to raise these levees to protect really a third of the homes in Corte Madera? 
Dana? So BCDC, uh, I, I'm the Assistant Planning Director for Climate Adaptation. We also recently hired an Assistant Regulatory Director for Climate Adaptation. And we're going to be spending a lot of time in the next few years looking at our own policies and our own authorities and looking at how we need to address uh, our, our own in-house on how we can issue permits better and change our policies to meet these kinds of questions. Uh, you know, we we can do a lot within our existing regulations, but we know that we're going to need to uh, change our policies and change how we issue permits in order to answer questions just like this. Um, so I would say, you know, call a permit analyst <laughs> to ask that, to answer that question specifically. Um, but in general, uh, you know, we need to learn how to be a 21st century sea level rise permitting agency. Um, and we're working on addressing that right now. Let's go to Martin in Concord. Martin, you're on the air. Hi, I just wanted to add, uh, as a hydrogeologist, I've done these kinds of studies. And what this requires is a groundwater flow model that factors in sea level rise. And that's how you see which areas are going to be impacted. And it's also how you test the impacts of what a uh, seawall or any other uh, feature might have on on groundwater behind that wall. Chris, do you want to elaborate at all there? Well, I will say he is absolutely correct. Um, we do need to model um, and look at how these solutions will actually will they be sufficient? Um, will they cause additional challenges? Um, and so, three D groundwater modeling um, is really the best way to look at that. That requires really understanding all of that, you know, soil characteristics underground. Um, it's not all one type of soil. You've got sands, you've got clays, and they're going to change those flow dynamics. Um, but yeah, he is absolutely right. Uh, groundwater modeling is is definitely needed. Well, a listener writes, I have wondered for a while, in light of climate change and expected rising sea levels, why are we building condos on landfill on Treasure Island? Are these buildings on bedrock? Are they raised? What is happening out there? Dana? Uh, yeah, I asked that question as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I think I've made it, you know, I've made it clear my, my stance on, on building new, new, uh, especially residential on, on uh, former Bayfill um, uh, land along the shoreline. I think our number one defense against um, reducing our risk in the future is to avoid um, building on on former baylands. Uh, I think it's our number one uh, area that we can return to baylands and uh, use that as protection against sea level rise. So uh, that would be if if there's one takeaway from this hour, I I would have it be that. Well, Daniel asks an interesting question: What will happen to cemeteries? and mausoleums with sea level rise. Ezra, have you written about that at all? I have not written about that at all. <laughs> okay, Chris, do you have any idea? What's going to happen to cemeteries? Yeah, I know that um, I was talking to one of my colleagues um, on the East Coast, and they are having challenges with um, cemeteries um, and, and trees dying. You can usually see in an area that this is going to become an issue. Um, but yes, this could end up requiring moving cemeteries mm -hmm. to a place where um, they would be safer and allowed to persist, um, but definitely outside of my area of expertise. Fair enough. Another listener writes, where are places we can live where we don't have to worry about this problem? If you live on a hill, is this avoidable? Uh, Dana, any thoughts on, on where you want to recommend people live if they want to stay in the Bay Area? 
Yeah. Um, so BCDC publishes uh, flood maps, the Bay Shoreline Flood Explorer, and it's not, you know, the Bay Area is not a lost cause. Uh, there are certainly flood zones for sure, um, but there's a lot of livable land in the Bay Area, and as it, it's it's inevitable that we're going to need to develop more. And and I'm certainly not anti-housing development in any way, shape, or form. We also have a housing crisis going on, and we just need to be smart about where we place our new development. Uh, we need to add density. We need to build back from the shoreline. We need to, you know, build in infill lots. Um, so there are plenty of, of places in the Bay Area that are not within the flood zone um, or won't be for, you know, many decades or hundreds of years. Um, so if you are purchasing a house, I purchased my first house last year, and I certainly looked at the flood maps. I also looked at earthquake maps, and I looked at wildfire maps. <laughs> and uh, sure, that cuts it down <laughs> to some degree. Um, but there are still plenty of places where we can live and plenty of places where we can build new housing. Let's see if we can get one quick call in. Julie from Menlo Park. Julie, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm interested in knowing if saltwater infiltration into groundwater can affect the network of high-pressure natural gas lines that are buried around the bay. Uh, some of these have been replaced, of course, but some, like the one along Highway 101, has not. Chris? That's a really good question. I mean, saltwater intrusion, um, as that groundwater becomes more salty, it can definitely increase corrosion rates. Um, a lot of um, uh, some high-pressure gas lines, particularly those going to the airports, they include sacrificial metals to help prevent the corrosion of the gas lines. I don't know if that's regular practice, um, but that's definitely one of the many potential consequences and impacts with a rising groundwater table that, that need to be looked at. Well, let's uh, hear another comment. Sean writes, I live in India Basin, just below Hunter's Point in San Francisco. We have a developer intending to build some 1,500 units on a piece of land that is primarily bay fill. In fact, India Basin was the last bay fill project in the 1960s and triggered the BCDC's creation. This project went through a BCDC review and was approved despite the concerns over liquefaction. How did the BCDC not flag this as problematic? Dana? Uh this goes to sort of the limitations of BCDC's authorities and jurisdiction. And uh, this, you know, our, our climate change policies uh, require a study to see how sea level rise will affect projects and requires resilient by mid-century and adaptable by end of century, but doesn't limit uh, development or um or say the development can't occur in areas of bay fill. So this is, you know, this is maybe one of the things that we need to be looking at more closely in the future um, and addressing through our, our our look at what our authorities and our and our regulations will allow um, in the future. So it's permittable under our current policies. Gotcha. We're talking about how the Bay Area is confronting sea level rise, and we're joined by Dana Breckwald, who you just heard from. She's the Assistant Planning Director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Dr. Chris May, she's CEO and Founding Principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And Ezra David Romero, he's a climate reporter here at KQED. And this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support us, go to kqed.org. I'm Leslie McClurg. Another uh, 
a comment or question from a listener. What about the impacts on wildlife and sea life? Since humans cause this, what, what are the primary impacts that we're going to see to, to sea life? Uh, Chris, do you have a sense of that? I mean, one of the impacts we're seeing already is a loss of wetlands. Um, if there's not a lot of sediment that's still coming into the bay, so we're a bit sediment deficient, you know, the sediment would come down for the rivers in these big rainfall events. And those wetlands need the sediment to, like, keep building up um, as the bay rises. And so we're definitely seeing a loss of wetland habitat, which then has cascading impacts to all of the different species that rely on those wetlands from, you know, nursery habitat for fish to the birds to the cutest little salt marsh harvest mouse. Um, so there's definitely um, there's a lot of activity going on to restore wetlands. <coughs> Excuse me, since they can also provide flood benefits. Um, so, but it's it's often it's it's a battle trying to save the wetlands um, while also adapting to sea level rise. It's a challenge. Seems like a lot of a lot of challenges at play here. <laughs> you know, we've talked about the, the one of the challenges being you know who's who's going to be in charge of this, and we haven't brought up one one thought that's often brought to the table. Should there be a sea level? sort of czar. What do you think, Ezra, given that you've reported on this and there's so many people at play, do we need just someone in charge of this? Well, there are, <clears throat> there are many organizations and agencies involved in this process. And, you know, I was talking to a professor from UC Davis this past week about, like, should there be an agency have more power? Um, should there be a state agency in charge of sea level rise on its own? And <clears throat> what I was understanding from him, Mark Lubell at UC Davis, he studies sea level rise governance. He was saying that he just doesn't think there's enough political will um, to do this, to give one person the power in the Bay Area, because we have 40 plus cities around the edge of the Bay. We have nine counties and we have like a wide political spectrum here at play. You have very you have places that are conservative. You have places that are very maybe more liberal. You have places that... Um, do, want a lot of development because they use it as their tax base to like fund their economy in that city. And so there are all these tensions happening here. And from what I understand, it's like it may be near impossible or a political Hail Mary to actually to have some one person to be in charge of all of this, all of this. And it would take legislation, um, the the act that created BCDC took legislation. It took the public um, getting rallied around this, convincing their legislators to be to do that, and then bring this to the legislature to create that. And so we would have to have that synergy and energy at the local level across the Bay Area. And it's not always happening right now. Would it make your life a lot easier, Dana, if there was just one person in charge? <laughs> uh that's a difficult question to answer. I think it, it in many ways it would be helpful if BCDC had different authorities or more authorities. Um, but I, I do believe in, in local land use control. And I, I do believe that sea level rise and adaptation is inherently very multidisciplinary. Um, so it does touch on, on lots of different authorities and different um, decision making. And I really don't think that any one agency has the full picture. And I don't think any one agency should. Should. And I also think that it's inherently very community driven. So there's no agency that gets what it's like to be a community member on the ground. And there's no substitute for that. Um, so it should be inherently driven by people who live there as well. And that's my biggest fear, I think, if there's a single czar that's in charge of, of adaptation, is that we lose that sense of, of what it's like to 
to make decisions about what you want the future of your own community to be like. Um, so I, 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 yes, it, it would make a lot of people's lives easier, but would it make for better outcomes? I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Real quick question before we uh, call this show good. Uh, Ezra at Constance asks, is there a place where I can find some updated maps for you know what's to be expected? Where's the best place to send people if they want to see what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, we have maps at kqed.org under climate, and there's also BCDC maps. And Dr. Chris May came out with maps just recently around water supply. I mean, uh, ground how groundwater is going to rise. And we have a story on kqed.org. Um, you can just type my name, Ezra David Romero, KQD, and it'll, it'll come. One of those stories will come up. Um, and both Dana and Chris's work are, are linked in those stories. And they're very sobering maps. So go ahead and take a look, listeners. We've been talking about how the Bay Area is confronting sea level rise. We've been joined by Diana Breckwald. She's Assistant Planning Director for the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Dr. Chris May, CEO and Founding Principal for Pathways Climate Institute, LLC. And Ezra David Romero, Climate Reporter here at KQED. Thank you so much, guests and listeners, for your calls and your comments. Uh, we really appreciated this conversation. Thank you to our experts. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? 
The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.